Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Well, I am excited to dig into it. I do want to just mention also that we, how good it was to get away and have a pastor's retreat there last weekend and uh, special time with us. We, I feel recharged and ready to go. Uh, last Sunday, got a chance to do something I very rarely get to do, and that's visit another church or like some people call it church spy. I get to spy on a couple other churches down in Arizona, and we had planned to go to a church that morning, and then, but I didn't start till 10 o'clock, the service, and so I said, man, I'm going to do another one, so I, I got two, I got two services in. I snuck in one in early, and, and I wanted to take in all I could from different churches to see what God's doing, but I'll say this, <clears throat> I like the home church better, okay? I don't care what anybody says, it is. So glad to be here, so delighted to just be able to open the Word of God. I love you folks, and so a special, special thing it is. Every time we get to come to church and look into God's Word, it is so sweet. And to do it alongside people like you, it's just nothing better. Song of Solomon, a book like no other, about a love like no other. And that's what we're going to be talking about as we go through love like no other. As I think that phrase has many different meanings. It is a love like no other that God has for us. There's a love like no other that a husband has for his wife and a wife should have for her husband. And so we're going to embark on a study about love. In particular, we are going to look at God-approved romantic love. And that's what this book really, uh, in its, in its uh, literal format, is all about. Now what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to read the first four verses and get a sampling of what we're going to be studying for the next few weeks, and then I'm going to give an introduction here uh, and then break down each one of these four verses. So let's just read all four verses together, if you'll follow along with me here as we begin. Song of Solomon, verses, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The song of songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Now, to the surprise of many, uh, God put an eight-chapter love song in the middle of your Bible. That is what it is. But since it's in there, it, it must be very important uh, for us to study it and understand it. I think God wants us to. Humans are made for relationship. First, we're made for a relationship with God. That's why he created mankind. That's why he created man and woman. I mean, from the very beginning. In fact, our human relationships, relationships between uh, friends or, uh, or a husband and wife or whatever it may be, every human relationship works at its peak only when the God relationship is in its right place and where it should be. So it all begins there. 
And, but, but the point is, when, when it comes to relationships, we are just not meant to be alone. Humans are just not meant to be alone. Even at the very beginning, God said it's not good that man should be alone. We need people, and we need relationships. And the deepest, but sometimes the most difficult of all human relationships can be marriage. Father O'Grady, he was saying his goodbyes to the parishioners at his, after a Sunday morning service, as he always did, and Mary Clancy came by uh, talking to him, and she was in tears. He said, what's bothering you, Mary? And she said, oh, Father, I have terrible news. Uh, she said, my husband passed away last night. Oh, Mary, said the good father, I'm so sorry, that's terrible. Tell me, Mary, did he have any last requests? Yes, Mary replied sheepishly. And he said, well, give it to me. And he said, please, Mary, put down the gun. (laughs) Listen, it's not always easy being married, okay? Let's just put that out there right out in front. But it's a precious gift, and it's a gift from God when done His way. It's a wonderful, wonderful and precious thing. And as we begin this study, it's a very passionate book. It's a spicy book. And I want to remind us that the very presence of Song of Solomon in the Bible tells us something. It tells us that God is 100% for love relationships. Love relationships that lead to passionate, fiery marriages. God loves love, okay? God loves love. He created it. Marriage is not a social construct that man came up with. It is a God-created institution. Uh, The the concept of marriage, if you think about it, I've sometimes just um, sat back and looked at it from from a distant point of view. I'm like, this is a strange thing you came up with, God. One stranger meets another stranger, and soon those two people become closer than any other two people could ever be. There is no other closer relationship than a husband and wife. The Bible says the two become one. There's no other relationship in the world where two become one. That's as close as you can get, deeper even than a parent and child relationship. And if you're familiar with the Song of Solomon, you know that it talks frankly about sexual intimacy in marriage. And just for information, there's nothing in the book of Song of Solomon about procreation being the purpose, even though one of the purposes of that. This is all just about God wanting married people to enjoy their marriage. But this topic makes us uncomfortable. We're Baptists, after all, you know. (laughs) This this gets me a little hot. And I'm a little uncomfortable, you know. Is it getting warm in here? That kind of thing. And I get it, no one is envious of me. I'm sure you're sitting there saying, man, I'm really envious of Pastor Luke. I wish I got to teach this book in front of everybody. But let me just remind you, this this, uh, Song of Solomon is in the Bible. It's not a dirty or profane thing, sexual intimacy in a marriage. When done God's way, it's the most beautiful thing that God desires. Now, let's consider this for a minute as we think about on that path because I I really just want to set this up correctly. Bible commentator David Guzik wisely points out that the idea that the truly spiritual people cannot or should not be married and enjoy sexual love, that that whole concept is not based in the Old Testament, that's for sure. Uh, In the Old Testament, did you know that there is no word for bachelor? 
in, in the Old Testament thinking, there, there were, everybody's pretty much expected to just get married. Every patriarch was married, all the priests were married. As far as we know, every prophet was married except for Jeremiah, who was uniquely commanded by God not to marry. And since the office of the high priest, you know, was, it was hereditary, it would be passed down, meaning you had to marry, uh, you needed to get married and have a family. And um, God wanted his people to experience and have this thing called marriage. And, so, and, and just as a reminder, it's also not based in the New Testament that we would say, ah, that's a filthy thing, it's a bad thing. In the New Testament, G- Jesus reaffirmed the value of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, religious leaders came to him asking a question about divorce, and, and he spoke about marriage. Uh, Paul told us that it was desirable for elders and church leaders to be married. Jesus began his ministry at a wedding, and the, the vi- final step in man's relationship and fellowship with God is pictured as a wedding, the wedding feast in heaven. So God is for marriage. God is for closeness in marriage. He wants, he's all happy about it. And, and in one of the clearest verses in all of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. That just puts it right out there. And that summarizes God's design, really, for sexuality. Uh, The marriage bed is undefiled, but anything else outside of that is subject to judgment, will be judged. That's as plain and simple as, it's, it's, it's the fire in the fireplace thing. A fire in the fireplace is warm and comforting and and blesses everybody, blesses the whole house. But if you start a fire in the living on the living room rug, it is destructive. And in the same way, sex within a marriage is good and brings warmth to the relationship, but as long as it's contained in God's way. Anything outside of that, it is destructive and harmful and hurts people. And it causes death, the Bible says. God is against anything, in other words, that is not biological male and biological female sex in marriage. That's, that's just how it is easily we can say it. The world is going to keep adding colors to the, f- to the flag. Uh, the rainbow flag just keeps on getting more and more and more and more colors. But God's, God's flag is just one color. Purple, <laughs> I'll, I'll say. Blue and pink mixed together. It's man and woman, and that's it. And it will always stay just one color. Now, when you do this marriage and sex thing God's ideal way, like, we talk, like we're going to see in Song of Solomon, it is passionate, it is romantic, it's exciting, it's mutually enjoyable, it's strengthening, it's long-lasting. It's all the things that God wants it to be. Am I making you uncomfortable yet? I hope so. What one pastor was telling uh, about his parents who were visiting he and his bride just after they had gotten married, and here's what he said. He said, Dad was so impressed uh, with me, with all the various safety precautions I had taken in the new house. He noted the smoke detectors, a first aid kit, a list of emergency phone numbers. My dad also saw that I had two fire extinguishers, one in the kitchen and the other in the bedroom. My father elbowed his uh, mom in the ribs and said, Gee, Barb, it's been years since we needed a fire extinguisher in our bedroom. (laughs) But that that is God's ideal for all who are married or will be married. Now, one more thing before I launch in here. Let me talk to all the different groups that are here. 
This book of the Bible may be difficult for some, and I want to acknowledge that. If you're single and you desire to be married, hang in there. There will be a lot to learn about courtship, uh, attraction, and marriage here in this book. A lot of great principles. For those who might be called to remain single, let me just let you know that you are called to something wonderful. Paul, the Apostle Paul was single. Jesus himself was single. But this is, let me just say, this is the Bible here, Song of Solomon, and I, I need to teach it. I must teach it. But may God give you, as a single person, the grace to pull out magnificent principles for all kinds of relationships, and especially the spiritual aspect that we're going to be talking about as we go through. Now, others in here are married, but their relationship is, with their spouse is greatly strained. Um, or they're just, you know, or you're uh, separated, or you're not married anymore. And listen, I understand that, and my heart grieves in that situation. And as anybody who's in a situation where things are just strained and very difficult, let me just remind you, uh, you can only do what you can do. But here's, but let this, as we go through, be a reminder, please do what you can do. Do everything you can do. But even for those with good marriages, let me just remind us that the passion that we're going to see throughout the book of Song of Solomon, this love story, this love song, it's not going to be like that 24-7. It's not God's intention here. Song of Solomon is the ideal, and we ought to have mountain peaks like that, but there are principles within the Song of Solomon that, that should stay solid and stay running all throughout the marriage. And, but God wants these beautiful moments of just overwhelming love and, and delight in each other. So what's amazing about the Song of Solomon is, I think, it's just this beautiful picture of something that God gives us to grow into and to strive for and to keep working at. And that really is romance. It's something that uh, we have to keep going after and, and keep putting ourselves out there. So as, and I, I'm hoping that, I uh, grow in love with the Lord through this personally and more in love with my wife. And I hope that's the case for all of us. Amen. Now let's talk about how we're going to interpret this book. Song of Solomon has made Christians and Jews uncomfortable for centuries. Mm-hmm. Had a hard time knowing how to interpret it the best. Many of the early Christians and the reformers and the Puritans really just didn't know what to do with it. So they avoided the whole practical side, the whole literal side, and they just took it on the allegorical side. So here's three ways that people interpret this book. One is allegorical, meaning it's all an allegory. It's God's love. The Jews would see it as God's love for Israel. And Christians, the early Christians, many of them would see it as Christ's love for the church. And that's where a lot of them just sat, right there. And they're not going to say anything else about it. Then there's the other way to uh, interpret it, and that's literal, meaning it's a poetic book uh, written by Solomon about love and intimacy between two lovers. And then the final way that we'll, we'll call it, and you, may, you can break this down several different ways, but we'll call it uh, typological or typological. It's meaning, what we're going mean, to mean by that is it's a mixture of both. It's a, the, the type, it's a, it's a picture of, of something. So we see the literal 
uh, interpretation in it. We see that it is a poem. It is about two people. It really is about a love and a romance between two individuals, but also it pictures beautifully the love that God has for the church. So we're going to try to look at both. And as, was all, as what we do with all other books of the Bible, by the way, we take it literal unless it's obviously not literal. Amen. And that's the best way to approach uh, Bible uh, interpretation. There's nothing in Song of Solomon that tells us that it's an allegory only. That's just, it's not there. And there's a great danger in over-allegorizing Scripture. You can go down some strange roads. As we like to say, if it makes sense, make no other sense, otherwise you end up with nonsense. So if, if the Bible makes sense, make no other sense, otherwise you end up with nonsense. All right, so here's the purpose of the book, Song of Solomon, and that is to illustrate the pure and sexual love between a husband and a wife. And then number two, to illustrate God's love for the church. And those are the purposes, and that's kind of the main thrust of what we're get, what's going to happen over these next few weeks. Because we know the whole story, God's grand story from Genesis to Revelation, and we know what God's plan is, and we, we see all the other scriptures, and we see how it all fits together beautifully, and we know that God says his love for the church is like a marriage. He likens it to a marriage. So knowing that, we can look at the book of Song of Solomon and say, ah, not only is it a beautiful thing between this husband and wife, but also it's this thing that, that a beautiful picture of God's love for us as well. And so we can draw that analogy and that illustration. You know, I kind of, when I think about it that way, it's kind of like uh, if you, somebody who might just pick up the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You might pick that up and, and it's a fictional uh, book and it's about a fictional lion that dies and then comes back to life. Somebody might read that and say, well, that's a nice little fictional story about a lion who dies and comes back to life. But see, those who know the author, C.S. Lewis, we see the analogy. We know what he's talking about. We know where he's going with that. And that's the same thing with the Song of Solomon. Because we know the author, because we know the one who really was the one behind the whole thing, we see the beautiful love story between God and man as well. And so I look forward to going through this and uh, growing in love in, this, in, in all ways. So... It's also good to know the cast of characters as we begin here. There's three primary groups or two individuals in one group. The Shulamite woman, and by the way, the Shulamite woman, so we're going to see her talk a lot. And matter of fact, she's talking most of the time. I'm just saying, okay, ladies? She's just about as twice as much as he talks, she talks in the book. Somebody actually even did a percentage on that. But, but anyway, then there's Solomon, and he's the lover and... Uh, we're going to hear from him as well. And then the friends. Sometimes you see the friends break in in a chorus, and they sing the friends of the bride, the friends of the groom, and they're kind of the audience in this whole thing, but they are participating. They're taking in uh, and in showing, expressing their love for this couple. All right, so let's dig in. Verse 1, the song of songs, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. In other words, this is the song of all songs that Solomon has ever written. It's the greatest of all Solomon's songs. How many songs did Solomon write? Well, speaking of Solomon, here are some verses. 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, look at this. For he, he's talking about Solomon, he was wiser than all men, 
and Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, the, the Chalcol, or Anchalcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all nations round about. And then look, verse 32, and he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So Song of Solomon uh, now is his best hit out of all 1,005 of his songs. Out of all the songs he wrote, this is the best one. And how precious for, for us, for humans, that his song of songs is about love and intimacy between a husband and wife. And that God would put that in there for us. But that leads us to Solomon. Is he the right one really to write the song uh, about a, 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 you know, a, a love between one man and one woman? I mean, this, can a man who has 700 wives and 300 concubines really speak about exclusive love between a husband and a wife? Well, <clears throat> some scholars believe that he wrote this early in his life. And this is, he was talking about his very first and real love and before he screwed everything up. Yeah. <laughs> or the others think that he actually wrote it when he was old and looking back and now understands what he should have done, what true love really looks like. You know, we did talk about Song of Solomon, or excuse me, Solomon uh, writing the book of Ecclesiastes and pursuing everything under the sun. That includes women. And he tried that. And now saying, it means, it means nothing. This is truly love between a man and a woman, one man, one woman, one lifetime. We just don't know exactly when he wrote it. But remember this, ultimately this, is, this book is from God. It's from God through Solomon. And God can use a flawed vessel to give us truth. And in fact, Solomon's life is a good example of what happens when you go against what he himself wrote and you break God's commandments. He would have been better off if he just stuck to what he wrote here. But as far as trying to understand the flow and the organization of the song and, and all of that, it's not an easy task. Let me just say that up front. Remember, it's, it says it's a song of songs. It's a song. It's, it's music. It's meant to be put to music. It's It's poetry. It's artistic. It's not necessarily meant to be a clearly organized story from beginning to end. It's not chronological. We see snapshots of this couple's courtship, and we see snapshots of their married life, but not necessarily in exact order. But all along the way, there are these amazing and helpful principles that I look forward to highlighting, and, and I look forward to bringing those out each week for us because there are, there are many practical thoughts. And by the way, I like what one commentator brought out about this. You know, it says Solomon wrote 3,000-something proverbs, and we have many of those proverbs in, in Scripture. Um, proverb, if Proverbs is written primarily for boys, Song of Solomon is written for girls. Um, proverbs is really an ongoing conversation that a father has with his son about wisdom and about how to make right choices and what to stay away from and what to do. It's just constant wisdom for his son. But Song of Solomon is a love song that a girl would just treasure and be able to look, uh, look forward to. For me, when I read the Song of Solomon, uh, again this time, <laughs> the feeling that I got, I mean, there's so much to learn, but the feeling that rose up within me is, is like going to a wedding. 
you know, it's being reminded. I don't know, if, if you're married and you've been married for a while and you go to a wedding, it's like you're reminded, oh yeah, <laughs> I need to be romantic with my wife. This is a beautiful thing, marriage God created, and God gave me a gift, and we need to make sure we're as uh, romantic as we can be. But here at the beginning of the chapter here, we see one truth that I want to bring out. This is the one principle that I'm going to just highlight for today. And that is this. Good character is what attracted her the most. Good character, we're going to see, is what attracted her the most. So when we're talking about attraction, uh, when, a, when a boy and a girl meets and what, what is most attractive, guys, listen up. It's good character that attracts her the most. And it's the other way around, I think, too. Ladies, it's good character that shines the most. I think these next words that we're going to see are the bride speaking now. She's looking back at the beginning of their love. Some have described it as she's sitting there in front of the mirror on her wedding day, and she's thinking back of of how their relationship came together. And so now she's describing her feelings. Verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For thy love is better than wine. Can you tell that this woman is in love? (laughs) L-U-V. She is in love. And what a beautiful thing it is to be in love and for her to be able to say these words. Which, by the way, in this book, you don't see a woman being forced into this marriage. That is not how God intended marriage to be. She is choosing this with everything that's within her. But notice the phrasing. She desires the kisses of his mouth, but she wants him to kiss her. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She's bold, but she wants him to initiate. Uh, Author Lloyd Carr said, there is nothing in here, in this book, of the aggressive male and the reluctant or victimized female. They are one in their desires because their desires are God-given. And by the way, the description of the kisses that she wants here are very romantic. She's not asking for a little peck on the cheek or a friendly greeting kiss that we might give. This is the kisses of his mouth. And Why is this woman so in love with this man? Well, we're going to see that she has opened to him because of who he is. And how he has treated her with such love and respect. Husbands, here's a reminder. Women open up physically when they are treated well emotionally. Next week, we're going to see that the kind of language that touches a woman's heart and the kind of language that we ought to use as, as men and husbands. But this principle is forgotten in many marriages. You know, my wife and I hear sometimes married couples out in public talking to each other and it absolutely breaks our heart. How can there be any real deep intimacy when there's animosity? My wife just told me last week about being at Winco. She goes to Winco once a week and I pray a hedge of protection over her every time. But but, um, she's a strong lady. (laughs) But the other day she was there and she said, I was going through the store and there was a couple that was just loud, I mean, yelling at each other throughout the whole store. I mean, and she said, every time I turned, they were right behind me, it seemed like. Um, and, but then they would turn to the, sh- the strangers around them and talk very kindly to them and then turn back to each other and start yelling. What's the deal with that? 
And you know, the, the, the Gottman Institute, they, it's a group that studies thousands of marriages and they have for decades. They say that they can predict divorce within a 95% accuracy just by listening to a couple talk to each other. Words. So be kind, we're gonna talk about that more next week a little bit, but find words and actions that touch each other's heart, that touch each other's heart, respectful and loving words. We should, we should be able to give that uh, all the time, no matter what we have to discuss. And in verse two, this woman responds here with passion to this kind of a man. She has a love that is to her sweeter and more intoxicating than wine. She is totally infatuated with this man. And you want this kind of love on your wedding day. Passionate love. You know, I actually worry when a courting couple doesn't have passionate feelings for each other. That's a, that's a scary situation. They, they, ought to be, they ought to be so just enraptured with each other. You know, our, our first night, uh, our wedding night was in San Francisco. We got married, and then we were head, heading over to San Francisco for our first night. And you know how long it takes to drive to San Francisco, right? Well, let me just say, I got there in 45 minutes, okay? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> what, <laughs> but what made her, yeah, but what made this woman, is it hot in here? I don't know, I can't tell. <laughs> but what made her so passionately in love with this man? All the single guys are wanting to know that. What, what made her say those words in verse 2? Well, verse 3, look at this. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Thy name is as ointment poured forth. That expression is, tells us that she had a deep respect and esteem for the, his character and his reputation. The name of a person represented much more than just their title. It was, it was their character, it was who they were, it was their reputation. His name was like ointment poured forth and flowed from the savor of his good ointments. When his name was spoken, when her man's name was spoken, nobody held their nose. <laughs> it wasn't a stinky name. It was a beautiful name. It was the savor, the smell of it, the fragrance of it was good to everybody. Everyone knew that this man was worthy of honor and worthy of respect. He was, he was walking the walk. And it was important to her that not only she saw that, but that her friends also spoke highly of him. Look what it says, the virgins love thee. This shows us that, wise, that a wise woman chooses a man whom others see to be a man of character. See, the other young ladies even looked and said, man, he is a good man. In a good way, that's, you, you got yourself a good one. That's a man who, who is worthy. And she's not the only one who can see how good he is. And if, if there's a situation where a girl that's getting together with a guy and she sees, man, he is such a good guy, but everybody around says, <coughs> everybody disagrees with her, that, that's a problem. That's a problem. All the young ladies knew that this was a good man. And again, it was his character. It was his reputation that was most attractive to her. That's the thing that stood out. That's the, the thing that drew her in. As one Baptist commentator, Daniel Estes, said, he said, from the start, 
They focused on the other's character and kindness toward each other. They learned to value and care for each other as persons. Gals, you should be asking, what is his character? How does he treat people? How does he treat waiters and store clerks? Does he work well with others? Does he have a good reputation among the good people in the community? Would all your girlfriends be happy with this kind of a man? What do your parents say about his reputation? You know, when Ruth Bell, who eventually married Billy Graham, was a teenage girl going off to Korea for schooling from her childhood home in China, she fully intended to be married, uh, or actually she at first thought she would be just a confirmed old maid missionary, you know, to Tibet. That was her plan, or thought thought that that was going to happen. But she did give a a thought about a husband, and she gave it some serious consideration. And here's what she wrote about what she was looking for in a husband. She said, if I marry, he must be so tall that when he is on his knees, as one has said, he reaches all the way to heaven. His shoulders must be broad enough to bear the burden of a family. His lips must be strong enough to smile, firm enough to say no, and tender enough to kiss. Love must be so deep that it takes its stand in Christ and so wide that it takes the whole lost world in. He must be active enough to save souls. He must be big enough to be gentle and great enough to be thoughtful. His arms must be strong even to carry a little child. Listen, you definitely want a man that's easy on your eyes, ladies. You have to look at him the rest of your life. I get that. (laughs) But it's the character. It's the character that makes a man shine. And and that's what made the Shulamite woman swoon. No wife has ever said, yeah, he's a jerk. He's cruel. He's angry all the time. He flirts with all the other girls, but he's handsome. So we have a great relationship. (laughs) Nope. Beauty fades, but character is always attractive. You know, someone has said that after the wedding, Men get furniture disease. You've heard of this. Their chest moves to their drawers. (laughs) Beauty fades. Beauty fades. Or in the words, if we like to remind each other, told several of the gals the words of, uh, he's not a theologian, but he's a comedian, Steve Harvey. He said, gals, get you an ugly man. He will be grateful to have you and treat you good. Uh, not, Not bad advice, actually. She continues here, number f- verse four, draw me, draw me, we will, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers, we will be glad and rejoice in thee, we will remember thy love more than wine, the upright love thee. This appears to be the maiden here, this, this gal looking forward to the wedding. Draw me. This is the logical desire of a woman uh, so taken with love and desired that she just wanted to be with her beloved. She wanted to be with him and and wanted wanted to be one with him. And and then it says, we will run after thee. This is probably her friends speaking, the daughters of Jerusalem. See, they're looking, they're the onlookers here and they're observing and celebrating this whole love story. We're gonna run with you. They wanna see what will happen in this wonderful love as it builds and takes its course and and again, that points out that this is such a good thing. And, and from their respectful distance, they want to be a part of it and see it all. This is this, God, God delights in this, and it's good. We all should be 
grateful to be able to see this come together and to see a, a, a man and a woman come together. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, because it doesn't seem yet that like their love is consummated, their marriage is consummated, it could be that his chambers here is poetic and symbolic in a sense that he has welcomed me into the affections and the secrets of his heart. Or it could be that she is imagining entering into the wedding and then that wedding night. In any case, you know, her friends rejoice in this, this love, this pure and passionate love. They say, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. The daughters of Jerusalem here, they saw this passionate love as something to celebrate, is a good thing. And then we will remember your love more than wine. Remember thy love more than wine. Another phrase that's remarking on the beauty and the goodness of their love. And, and the upright love, the, again, just uh, good people looking on. This is such a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's a blessed thing. You see it as God, something God wants and desires. And I hope we all understand that this morning. You know, this couple, as we're looking at them, they have done things the right way. That's kind of what this is all pointing to. They've done things the right way up until this wedding day here. They've uh, kept themselves pure, They've done, they followed the Lord. They're in love with not only each other's beauty, but each other's uh, character. And it's such a good moment. And everybody can celebrate. And that is what God wants for couples. <laughs> a Bible counselor that I spent some time with in training, I was listening to him counsel people. And he's, I remember him telling me this as a young man before we were married. And he said this to me, he said, there's nothing more exciting, Luke, than two virgins on their wedding night. <laughs> and he told me, just stay pure. Do the right thing. Purity, as somebody says, paves the way to intimacy. Do this thing the right way, and God makes it beautiful. But you know, this also reminds me of how, as we've talked about, how good Jesus is to us. As the groom, Jesus treats us with sacrifice and perfect character, the Bible says. Has God ever treated you wrong? Has G Jesus ever treated you wrong? You will, you will not find a better love than Christ's love for you. Charles Spurgeon, he, he preached 59 sermons from the Song of Solomon. And one of them was called Better Than Wine from this passage here. Love is better than wine. He brought, brought out two main points. I'll just read them off real quick for you. Christ's love is better than wine because of what it is not. He, he said it is totally safe and may be taken without question. It doesn't cost anything. Taking more of it does not diminish the taste of it. It is totally without impurities and will never turn sour. It produces no ill effects. And then he also said Christ's love is better than wine because of what it is. Love, the love of Christ has healing properties. The love of Christ is associated with giving strength. The love of Christ is a symbol of joy. And the love of Christ exhilarates the soul. Listen, finding a good mate is precious. Keeping a good relationship with that mate is even sweeter over time. But there is nothing better, there is nothing better than the love of Christ. There is nothing better than knowing that at any moment, at any time, you can go to the one that truly does love you, that truly is there for you. And knowing this, that you as a child of God, you are bound to him forever. There's never going to be a day that you won't be uh, close with your Savior. What a precious thing. Lord, we love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church 
and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.